Good evening. So this evening I'm going to talk about, uh, in this series about chronic diseases, about three major chronic diseases of the lung, uh, one of the most important organs of the body. The thing to understand with chronic diseases is firstly that um, they are things which go on for long periods of time. Sometimes when they come on in someone, they will then go on for the rest of their life. Sometimes they come on in people and they get worse over time. Sometimes they go away and sometimes they come and go. The diseases I'm going to talk about today uh, are examples of all of these. Uh, and uh, I'm going to talk uh, about three major diseases here in the UK, which are typical of uh, developed countries. Uh, asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and cystic fibrosis. Now, with all chronic diseases, uh, they're made up of a combination of genes, how your genetic makeup, uh, environment, what we're all exposed to, and chance. But the ratio between how important those three are varies depending on which disease we're talking about. And again, in the three diseases we'll talk about today, the ratios of importance between those uh, varies very considerably. Now, clearly, in any population, leaving aside migration, genes change incredibly slowly. But the environment can change incredibly fast. Uh, and I've just, to illustrate this, uh, compared where we are now, the city of London, uh, has, as it was around the first 30 years of the life of this college, uh, and as it now is now. And the environment you and your lungs are exposed to are completely different between those time periods, although your genes are the same as those of you who are uh, the, the, the same as your uh, forefathers and foremothers of that period. Now, environment in this sense includes lots of things. It includes, obviously, the air we breathe and the water we swim in uh, and the environment uh, we walk around in, but it also includes infectious disease agents, uh, our living spaces, uh, and importantly for these diseases, our occupation. I'm going to start with asthma. Asthma is the, chron the commonest chronic lung disease, particularly in developed countries. Uh, I'm completely confident there will be several people in the audience, possibly many people in the audience, who will have asthma, and all of you will know people with asthma or have relatives with asthma. Currently, uh, in the UK, there are about 5.4 million people receiving treatment. The number of people who've actually got disease will be higher than that. Uh, and that's made up of about uh, a million children, so one in 11 children, uh, and roughly 4.3 million adults, so roughly one in 12 adults have asthma. In terms of childhood asthma, uh, asthma sometimes gets better. So some children, and I'll go on to this in more detail later, uh, get asthma and it then goes away uh, in early life. Uh, other people develop it uh, in childhood and it stays, and other people... Uh, develop it in adulthood. But it is, as I say, extremely in, uh, common. Uh, it obviously is a major uh, part of the work of the NHS and any other health service. Uh, and if you look worldwide, the numbers are pretty uh, impressive. Uh, over 235 uh, million cases uh, a year uh, uh, in, uh, around the world. When people get a, disease, a diagnosis of a chronic disease, they often think that's a real problem and that's going to limit my life very considerably. Actually, in the case of asthma and very many chronic diseases, uh, with modern medicine and sensible management, that is absolutely not the case. So I'm just going to illustrate that with two groups of professions, and the first of which is asthma, which of course has uh, 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 impacts on people's breathing, and uh, is this a bar to people being uh, a, an athlete or to enjoying sports or exercise? And for all but a very small minority, the answer is absolutely not. I've chosen uh, to illustrate this uh, with five uh, in international athletes who almost all of you will recognise, uh, who've all said, this is not making any, med making any medical conferences, that they have uh, asthma uh, from long-distance running, from football, uh, soccer, for those of you in some other countries, uh, from swimming, uh, cycling and cricket. And there are many others. So these are people at the top of their game uh, who have asthma. Or there are some other professions which require very controlled breathing. 
those who, in, who are involved in music, particularly singing uh, and wind instruments, uh, those who are involved in politics. I've chosen people from a range of different political traditions uh, and a few people uh, who are involved in both. So there, are, uh, you know, there is no reason why people with asthma cannot have a completely full uh, professional and social life. What asthma does is through uh, a localised inflammation uh, for practical purposes, it narrows the airways, and for most people, this is on a relatively temporary basis. And it does this by three different mechanisms. And these are the relatively small but not tiny airways uh, of the lung. The first thing it does is it narrows it because it constricts the muscle around the airways, and that actually just reduces the diameter. The second is because of inflammation, people start to produce sputum, and that narrows it further. Uh, and then uh, the third uh, uh, way uh, is, uh, you know, is that you actually end up with inflammation of the airway uh, of the of the, um, the, air, the inflammation of the airway, and that because it's a bit boggy and a bit inflamed, as you would get on the skin or in your mouth from time to time. Uh, reduces it further still. So by three different mechanisms, uh, it reduces how uh, wide the airways is, and that makes it more difficult for people to breathe. Now, asthma is partially inherited. There is undoubtedly a significant genetic familial component. And we know this, we've known this for some time because there is clustering of asthma in families it's more likely if you have a parent with asthma. If you have a mother, it's slightly more likely than a father. And if both your parents have asthma, then it's more likely than if one of them have asthma. And if you have an identical twin, you have somewhere between a 20 and 30% uh, chance of getting asthma if they have asthma. What this tells you is there is a strong genetic component, but it's not the whole story. If it were the whole story, then the identical twins would both get asthma. So this is uh, some degree of, asthma, of, of genes uh, and some degree of either uh, environment or chance. Now that we have methods of actually looking at genetic uh, systems, what we found is that there are at least 100 genes and probably more which are associated with asthma. So for six people, unrelated people who have asthma, probably completely different combinations of genes are involved in giving them that asthma. And many of these, these genes occur on many of the, uh, of many of the chromosomes of the body. These aren't all of them, but these are some of them. And they tend to be associated with things that also give you other allergic conditions, things like hay fever uh, and atopy of the skin. So they tend to cluster together. This isn't just something which is of academic interest, although it is quite interesting, uh, but the main thing that's important about this is that certain gene-environment combinations, and importantly for the future, certain gene-drug combinations are going to be particularly effective. So understanding the genetic basis of asthma, particularly severe asthma, is over time going to be increasingly important. But asthma isn't just a genetic uh, condition, although there is a genetic component. It's very heavily influenced by the environment uh, people are in. And many, many things can trigger asthma attacks in people who have a tendency towards asthma. Uh, and avoiding all of them is virtually impossible. Now, in some people, it's just a, a few very specific things that trigger an asthma attack, and if they don't get exposed to those, then they don't get asthma. But for many people, a whole range of triggers can do it. And I've given some examples. They include infections, which I'll come on to, various allergens, things that people are allergic to, a number of drugs. The classic one is aspirin, but some beta blockers, which many of you uh, may be on, for example. Cold induces asthma in some people. Exercise uh, in some people, and some people is a bit of an excuse. Uh, chemical fumes, emotional stress, and pollution are all things, and there are others, which can induce asthma attacks in some people or in all people at certain levels. So it's a combination of genes and environment. Now I'm now going to look at the time trends for asthma in three different ways. And the first one is to ask the broad question, is asthma getting more or less common here in the UK and other developed countries? And if I'd been giving this talk 
up to any time up to about 1995, I would have given a talk which said asthma is steadily increasing. We don't know why. Here's a bunch of theories. And the theories still exist. And there's a lot of theories around it's because people no longer have worms, it's because of clean living, it's a whole variety, it's because of pollution, it's because of modern living in general. But what appeared to happen in the 1990s in the UK and many other countries is that the rates of asthma, the new diagnosis of asthma, started to go down. We don't really know why. Uh, it could be that we just changed the diagnostic criteria. So it's just maybe that just doctors are diagnosing asthma differently, but I think most people think that there is additionally some real change in the amount of asthma uh, we are having in the community. And if you look over the last 10 years, for which there are data, that's up to 2012 here, this is just comparing every area of uh, England and Scotland and Wales, and what you can see uh, is that in all of them, the rates of asthma have gone down at roughly the same rate, which tends to imply this is a real phenomenon. So this, this change has happened everywhere in the country, and it's happened in other countries as well. So that's the big trends over time. How about over the life course? And here, there are many different patterns of asthma, and what we have here is age in months along the bottom here, and the probability of wheezing, which is a proxy for asthma, or you can wheeze for lots of other reasons, over time. And what you find is there are a number of patterns, particularly for children who wheeze. Some children have a lot of wheezing in their first 18 months, and then it goes away and never comes back. In other people, they get wheezing, and it stays for the rest of their life. These people will be uh, asthmatic in, uh, in their adulthood and be given that label. Some people, asthma will come on later, in, at the, the, in, uh, above their 30th month, uh, and uh, other patterns exist. And of course, the majority of people have no wheezing at all, except maybe during particularly severe infections. So lots of different patterns. Probably some of these are associated with different genetic conditions, and some are associated with different environmental conditions. But there's also a very clear temporal association over the year. Asthma is not something that is equally likely at every time of year. There is in particular a winter peak in asthma, which is made up mainly of infections, probably a little bit of cold and a little bit of going to school, in fact, in children. Uh, and this peak in asthma diagnoses is particularly pronounced in children under the age of four, where a very large proportion of the first diagnoses are made uh, around uh, this time here is around the Christmas, Christmas time, so in the period running up to and just after Christmas. Once children get above four, there is still some peak, but it's a bit less pronounced. And there are reasons for this. The main one uh, is to do with peaks of infection. And what I've shown here are firstly the data of all the influenza, or well, three of the influenza epidemics we have, which we have every year, uh, minor, when I say epidemics, I mean sort of up, up, up major upticks. They're not sort of full-blown epidemics of influenza. Uh, the, the black line is the current data from this year. That's this, month, this, this week's data, in fact, of influenza. We had a peak. It peaked about three weeks ago now. We had a similar peak, but a much lower one last year. And we had a much bigger one if you went back to 2010. But these peaks drive some of the asthma that you see. But other viruses peak at other times of the year. So here, for example, is rhinovirus, which gives, causes a lot of colds. This peaks much earlier in the year. So depending which viruses affect you personally, the, the peaking will occur at slightly different times of the year. But infections aren't the only thing. So think uh, of people, for example, who have a hay fever trigger. And this is just comparing four different plants, two trees, uh, to what we would consider to be weeds, uh, which uh, have firstly different distributions in different parts of the country. So you, and different people are actually allergic to different plants. Different plants occur at different places, and they have their peak pollen production at different times of year. So depending who you are, where you live, and what time of year it is, this will have different effects on your asthma. So this is the reason why there's a lot of variation over the year. 
And this uh, isn't just for mild asthma. This peak is seen in hospital admissions. And unsurprisingly, the two big peaks are in very young children, 0 to 4, uh, and in people over the age of 75. As with all diseases, severe disease tends to be concentrated in the very young and in the very old. And they're the people who will end up in hospital. Now, let's move on to the diagnosis and treatment of asthma, having dealt with some of the epidemiology. The diagnosis of asthma is actually often surprisingly difficult. This is, in very severe cases, this is obvious, but in many cases, it's much harder to diagnose, even uh, with uh, method, uh, modern methods uh, using spirometry and other uh, uh, the kit. Uh, the first attack of wheeze in a child is very often not asthma. So if your child wheezes for the first time, don't immediately think they've got asthma. An important part of whether someone has got asthma is do they respond to treatment? If they don't respond to treatment, which I'm coming on to, it's very unlikely it actually is asthma. Asthma is highly responsive to the treatments available. We've had highly effective uh, treatment for asthma since about the 1950s. Uh, there were experimental treatments before that, but that was the first point widespread effective treatment started. Before that time, asthma still existed. Asthma can be found back in medical texts dating back thousands of years. This is not a new disease. And I've just given an illustration of a few of the many treatments that have been written in good faith by learned physicians over the years uh, to say this is how you should treat uh, asthma. They include, for example, the blood of wild horses, the blood of owls, uh, centipedes in honey. Um, there was quite a vogue uh, for psychotherapy as a cause for this, and cigarette smoking. Uh, most of these are useless, if, and some of them are rather unpleasant, and one of them would be extremely unhelpful. But we now have a large number of drugs for asthma and two really important classes of drugs and, two, and several others which I think are just uh, bare slightly short to mention. The first two drugs are both hormones, both discovered to some extent accidentally having an effect on asthma and both from the same gland, the adrenal gland, but they're different uh, drugs. And the first one uh, was adrenaline. It's been known since about 1910 that if you injected adrenaline that would have an effect on asthma. So in an emergency, adrenaline works, uh, is still used under certain circumstances. But the problem about adrenaline is, as you will all know from uh, O-level or GCSE, uh, this is your flight fight uh, uh, um, hormone, uh, and it has a wide number of effects on your heart and on many other bits of the body. So the trouble about adrenaline is using adrenaline affects far too much of the body to be practical for most people. So what then happened was a development of drugs, and the most important one uh, is a drug called salbutamol, which was developed in 1966 here in the UK, in where, by Sir David Jack, uh, in a predecessor of GSK. And the point about this drug is it affects the adrenaline receptors, but it affects them selectively in the lung, and much less uh, affects them in other parts of the body. So it has the same effect as adrenaline on the lung, but doesn't have many of the bad side effects that adrenaline had. And what uh, this does is when this hits the receptor, uh, it relaxes the smooth muscle, and it also has some anti-inflammatory activity. And that, that widens the uh, air uh, pipe, and that allows breathing to resume. There's now a range of other drugs in this uh, class, which are called beta-2 adrenergic agonists. Agonist means it stimulates. Adrenergic means it comes from adrenaline. Beta-2 is just this is the receptor, which is relatively selective. So it's a long mouthful, but it basically means it comes from adrenaline, of which the most common one probably used here in the UK is Ventolin. Most people with asthma will carry a Ventolin inhaler with them for rescue. This is a rescue drug. Someone has an asthmatic attack. They take some puffs of this they feel better. The second big class of drugs were the inhaled steroids. They're the main inflammatory prevention drugs. And that really came out of uh, injecting the hormone corticotrophin, also comes from the adrenal gland, very different kind of uh, hormone. Uh, and what they found was when they injected it, they ended up with a long period of protection from asthma. And then some trials were done 
uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and what they demonstrated, this is uh, the results of one of those trials, some trials are done, and what they showed is if people inhaled asthma, firstly they injected it, then they took it orally, then they inhaled it, and they did that regularly, that prevented asthma attacks from happening at all. Unlike the, uh, the adrenaline-like one, the salbutamol, uh, it's not used for sudden attacks, but it's used for prevention. So the mainstay of treating asthma now is using inhaled steroids. And unlike oral steroids, which get all the way, large amounts get all the way through the body, have a number of side effects, this is very heavily concentrated in the lungs. Much smaller amounts get into the rest of the body, which is why inhalation is the best way to do it. Multiple uh, makes, multiple ways of giving it, discalers, in, uh, powder, powder inhalers, uh, sprays, but all of them do the same job. And if people take them, and if they have made a reasonably good technique, meaning they deposit it in their lungs rather than in their gut, then uh, it will prevent asthma in the great majority of people. And this point about technique is non-trivial. It's actually surprisingly difficult to do this well. So uh, a lot of people ha have to learn over time. But a number of other drugs also arose, quite a few of them, in fact, from traditional medicine. Uh, the first group which are still uh, with us uh, is it's been known for, it's been for some time sp stri uh, smoking a dried uh, variety of thorn apple, also known as devil's snare, uh, was found to have an effect uh, on asthma. And this effect is real. The active ingredient was a drug, uh, an alkaloid, which is similar to what you get in uh, deadly nightshade, actually, uh, it has anticholinergic effects, and it's like the drug atropine, which you tend to see in, uh, in, in movies which have people injecting their hearts as part of the uh, chase scene. Um, and what we found was, uh, obviously, atropine has multiple effects on the body, but it's possible to find a stable form of this, uh, and this is now used uh, in inhalers for people who have slightly more severe or more complicated asthma, and it makes the uh, beta-agonist drugs more effective. So this is the third drug class that is widely used. And there are several other drugs that are used rather more rarely. Uh, theophylin, which generally people, any people with more severe uh, asthma has, actually derived originally as an extract of tea leaves. It comes from traditional medicine. At the other end of the scientific spectrum, and these uh, drugs, anti-leukotriene and anti-IgE treatments, were deliberately designed to treat asthma. They've really only come on the market properly in the last couple of decades. And a drug which many of you who had asthma in the past will be very used to, but actually is now not very much used, uh, is uh, something called sodium chromoglycate. And that originally came, again, from traditional medicine from uh, something called Bishop's Weed, which is this one down here. So what we have is some things that were essentially from experiments using hormones, some things which from, from traditional medicine from plants, and some things that were designed. Like much of medicine, uh, things go in rather indirect activities. Theophylline, in fact, was originally first used as a diuretic and only found to have asthma properties later on. But for the great majority of people, what they will rely on is inhaled drugs, and for most of them, what they'll have is an inhaled steroid, which is a preventer, and then a rescue drug, which is the beta-agonist drug, uh, which is for when they have a flare-up. And for the great majority of children and adults, those two inhalers are enough. And there are multiple combinations, but there are many alternatives which can be used if people are running into problems. And if you look at the current UK guidelines, these would be very this would be true for most countries. The guidelines vary slightly. What happens is very mild attacks. Uh, very occasionally, people are just given a blue inhaler, the beta-agonist ones, Almost everybody will go on to a low-dose inhaled steroid. And then if that doesn't work, you go up on the steroids. And if that doesn't work, you add in other drugs. But the great majority of people can have their asthma almost completely controlled with these combinations. For mild to moderate asthma, 
those drugs are definitely going to stay the mainstay for quite a long period of time. But for very severe asthma, and some people at the very severe end, uh, there's quite a lot of very recent uh, in interest, particularly in what are called the biologic agents. These are monoclonal antibodies, antibodies which bind onto things, and they have particular effects on parts of the uh, uh, inflammatory immune system which are involved in inflammation and asthma. Now, these drugs have had a transformational effect in many other parts of allergy and immunity with severe disease. So things like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, these drugs are having a major impact on already, and asthma is now starting to benefit. And I say these antibodies target specific areas, and the early trials of these drugs are very encouraging in severe asthma. So we've got an additional drug class and group of drug classes coming onto the system uh, which are likely to be in use, as I say, only for restricted uh, situations uh, in the next decade. We can, you know, asthma is in reality not one disease. It is multiple diseases which just overlap as a syndrome of getting breathless intermittently. And for mild to moderate asthma, we can still probably continue to treat it as a, mild, a single disease. Uh, but for severe disease, increasingly, we're going to subdivide it by both the syndrome, what triggers it off, and in due course, almost certainly, by genetics. And that will tell us that this drug will work in this person and this drug will not. So we'll be able to have targeted therapy. But that is a little way off at the moment. That's the direction of travel. So I think that the outlook for severe asthma... Uh, is actually very bright at this point in time. Only a small number of people with asthma ever need to go into hospital. Most people are managed entirely as outpatients or mainly by their GPs and nurses. But asthma is very common. And at the extreme end of asthma, some people have to go into hospital repeatedly with very severe attacks. And it can be life-threatening. The treatment of asthma in hospital is actually very straightforward, and it's using the same drugs as you use in milder asthma in just much larger amounts. Give oxygen, give steroids, but to get a very high dose quickly, give oral steroids and high doses of the, uh, in, in, the, the inhaled drugs by a mask like this. Occasionally, people may need temporary respiratory support, either with a mask which supports their breathing or very occasionally with artificial ventilation in an intensive care. But there are ways to manage severe, severe uh, attacks. Clearly, the main thing to do is to try and treat them as early as possible and in particular get on top of them with steroids. So there are severe attacks. And at the very extreme end, some people do die of asthma attacks. Um, rare in terms of the number of people with asthma, but still non-trivial numbers. Uh, so uh, in the last year for which we have data, about 1,400 uh, 1, people uh, in, the year, in the UK died of asthma. Heavily concentrated in older people, and then the, uh, but there are deaths all the way through the age spectrum, and they're pretty heavily concentrated in the winter months, as you'd expect, because that's when asthma attacks tend to be triggered. So that's asthma, and I've gone through it in that detail uh, and reason me seriously because what I wanted was to give information to people who've had a recent diagnosis of asthma or who've had a child or a friend with a diagnosis of asthma. Let's move on to the next major disease, uh, which uh, is less common but uh, arguably more serious, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, uh, COPD. Actually, COPD is a group of diseases, and it overlaps with asthma to some degree. And uh, these people in the middle, you have to recognize that they've got some degree of overlap. But it is essentially separate diseases. It's a very broad term, and there are, there are two major uh, syndromes within COPD, the first of which is emphysema. And emphysema is the, the lung sacs right at the bottom of your airway tree are where the exchange of gas occurs between the lung, with oxygen going into the blood and carbon dioxide coming out, and the blood. And this is, as you again you'll remember from school days, like bunches of grapes, when that increases the overall surface area over which this happens. And in emphysema, what happens is these healthy air sacs start to break down. So you get a much smaller surface area because these have broken down. 
And this happens due to inflammation over a long period of time. The second thing is chronic bronchitis, and that is where you get permanent inflammation, meaning you've got all the problems, rather like asthma, inflammatory conditions, uh, and also mucus production, and that blocks up the airways. So this combination is what causes COPD. There's a bit of, a, bit of an overlap between them. A lot of people have got both. And people who have this tend to have a chronic cough uh, and uh, shortness of breath. And this will get gradually worse over time with some flare-ups, which then get better again, but the general trajectory, as I'll show in a minute, uh, is downward. And in severe cases, you get really substantial destruction of the lung. This, uh, for those who are not used to looking at CTs of the lung, which I suspect is most of you, uh, is a highly abnormal lung caused by chronic bronchitis and emphysema, emphysema in this case. Now, the reason for talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, is that it is a very major cause of mortality, yet many people do not know about it in the way they do know about asthma. These are the mortality rates from respiratory disease here in the UK. And there are around 29,000 deaths a year. Remember, compare that to asthma, about 1.4 thousand deaths a year, which is 5% of all deaths and about 25% of all respiratory deaths. The other major ones being lung cancer, with which it shares the main risk factor, and pneumonia. The WHO uh, estimates that by 2030, this will be the third major cause of mortality in the world, and it's increasing in virtually every country uh, in the world. Now, dying of COPD is not the only issue. It very significantly reduces the quality of life of people who have it. And uh, I'm illustrating this with the MRC uh, grade system. And what you find is these grades, and there are two things I want to show with this. The first of which is, these are the grades, and I have skipped out the middle bits. Grade 2 disease, people are short of breath when hurrying on the level or walking up a slight hill. Sounds trivial, but imagine being anywhere that wasn't flat and having this condition. This is extremely common. You move four, down to grade 4 disease, still very common, Stopping for breath after walking 100 yards or a few minutes on level ground and down to grade 5 disease, too breathless to leave the house and breathless when dressing or undressing. So just the act of getting your clothes on or off is enough to make you very short of breath. This is incredibly destructive on people's lives. They are essentially trapped by their lungs in their house in a very restricted environment. You may occasionally see people essentially trapped just on an oxygen cylinder. And the mortality from these, unsurprisingly, goes up with each of these. Someone who has grade 5 disease is unlikely to survive, uh, well, the majority will not survive, beyond 30 months. So having severe COPD makes it a terrible last few months of your life because you're heavily restricted and a very high chance of dying at the end of it. This is not a good disease to have. Now, there are, in contrast to asthma with one exception, which I'll come on to, there clearly is some genetic basis to COBD, but this is essentially an environmental disease. And there are several potential environmental causes of it. Historically, in all countries, and still in many countries, the major risk factor is indoor cooking and indoor heating using open fires. And if you'd gone back to when Gresham College started, that would have been probably the biggest risk factor for people in London getting COPD, particularly in winter months. Outdoor air pollution has a role to play, and I'll be talking about that uh, in the next lecture. But also very many occupations, particularly ones which produce dust. So mining, coal mining in particular, brick making, welding, stonemasonry, flour and grain workers, agricultural workers foundry workers, textile workers, all of these are at increased risk of getting COPD because of the dust in the lung. And it inflames the lung and causes the destruction and the chronic bronchitis. But in high-income countries, the great majority of COPD now is in smokers. And in the UK, probably nine out of every 10 COPD cases are caused by smoking. And therefore, the epidemiology of COPD in high-income countries is the epidemiology of smoking. Now, there's some very good news, and then I'll come on to the less good news. Uh, 
the proportion of people who smoke in the UK is going down in every age group in every year. And these are the uh, most uh, uh, recent uh, ONS, Office of National Statistics data, demonstrating in every age group, every sort of broadband is an age group, and over time, smoking rates are decreasing. And in those who do smoke, the amount smoked is also decreasing. And this is, to some extent, a dose-response effect. So the less people smoke, the less likely they are to get COPD. So what we're seeing over time, possibly unsurprisingly, is that the COPD rates are going down. Now, COPD is not something that happens overnight. It tends to build up over a lifetime, and most people do not start to get their COPD symptoms until uh, late middle age or older age. So you do not tend to get it in young people, even young people who smoke. But the incidence in older people where the mid-risk is is gradually decreasing because smoking is decreasing. But because people are not dying of other things, in particular cardiovascular disease, which we've talked about in previous lectures, uh, the number of people living with COPD is going up over time. So there's a slight paradox that incidence going down, new cases, prevalence, the people who've got it, is going up. But because smoking is not uh, randomly distributed for the population, COPD is heavily concentrated in certain areas of the country, in certain groups. And in general, for example, there is a lot more smoking uh, in, for example, uh, the Northeast um, than there is in London. And therefore, there is more COPD in the Northeast and Northwest than there is in London. Unfortunately, smoking is also tends to be concentrated in people who are at the more disadvantaged end of the socioeconomic spectrum. So the reason that many of you may not have uh, met many people recently who got COPD is this is not a London Gresham College uh, phenomenon as much as it would be if you were, for example, uh, on a building site in Newcastle. But there are heavy smokers in every area of society, in every part of the country, and these are the people who are at risk. When people have got COPD, which, as I say, is a very serious thing, by some distance, the single most important thing is to stop smoking. If people carry on smoking, what will happen is their lung function will simply deteriorate inexorably to a point where they're they're limited to their house, and if nothing else kills them, that will eventually. If they stop at 45, for example, they can often put off uh, the lung function decrease to beyond the point where they naturally would still be uh, alive and well. But even if they stop at 65 having got some COPD, their COPD will improve initially and then will decrease in terms of its, uh, its disease much more slowly. So the single most important thing is to stop people smoking. One of the depressing things as a doctor is that people with COPD and other diseases, but COPD particularly, often blame themselves for smoking. I would like to make clear that I do absolutely think they should not. There is an incredibly powerful industry whose primary purpose has to make them, is to make them addicted to nicotine at a young age and to keep them there. Just to give some idea of the scale, and that is the cigarette industry, uh, this, is of, this is one of the wealthiest and most powerful industries in the world. And just to give you some idea of the scale, you might believe that because smoking is being uh, restricted to some degree by government in, uh, in higher-income countries in particular, the profits of this, this industry would be going down. Absolutely not. These are from... This is not an advocacy thing. This is the Wall Street Journal. These are the profits from the cigarette industry in the US. These are straight profits. Over $17 billion a year, just in one country alone. And another perspective, these are the major tobacco companies, Imperial Tobacco Company, $39 uh, billion um, uh, in terms of uh, income over, or in terms of net income uh, over a a year, uh, right down to the small fry who you wouldn't uh, necessarily have heard of. These are massive companies. The World Health Organization has an income which is between the bottom two here, $4 billion dollars. 
to cover all of the world for all disease. The UK has one of the strongest health research uh, uh, systems in the world. The total amount, by the combination of the biggest charities uh, and the government, through the Medical Research Council and the National Institute for Health Research, in total would put it tenth compared to the cigarette industries. These are massive industries, and this is to cover every single area of health research, every single area of health policy. One of the most nauseating things I see is the cigarette industry pretending to be on the side of the little person standing up to government when actually they are the people who are killing all the people who use their products. And they know they are. They know they are. And they make massive profits from it. So I do not blame in any way people uh, who are addicted to this drug, which in a massive industry has tried to get them addicted to it. Now, if we move on to uh, how you can prevent things uh, other than stopping smoking, which, as I say, is the most important thing once uh, diagnosed, there are some things we can do to reduce the exacerbations, the flare-ups. Uh, we can, for example, reduce the risk of getting influenza, flu, by vaccination, pneumococcal vaccines for uh, pneumococcal infections, and probably there will be others. In fact, some of the vaccines being produced to protect children in the developing world may prove to be useful in protecting also adults with COPD uh, around the world. Exercise has been clearly shown to improve lung function. And there are also the drugs which are used in asthma can help symptoms. But unlike asthma, where the drugs can essentially return the lung for practical purpose for most people back to normal state, all these are doing is reducing the symptoms. They're not turning the clock back. They're not able to retrieve lung, lung that has been damaged. We tend to use uh, the longer-acting drugs, so they're not so much using the rescue and rather less use of the steroids. And all the time, combinations are improving. I've chosen this particular trial only because it came out in... Uh, in the Lancet last week, demonstrating here is a trial uh, comparing one drug combination with another uh, in chronic obstructive airways disease and showing an improvement in symptoms. So we are already able to improve symptoms and we are, able, we are steadily improving our knowledge over time. Nevertheless, uh, you are, are obviously fighting against an incoming tide. Now, I said that genetics was less important, much less important in COPD than in asthma, but there is one subgroup of people who get COPD where it is a very major risk factor, and that is people who've got this uh, uh, genetic um, uh, condition, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Around 25,000 people in the UK have this. Most of them don't have symptoms, actually, but around 1% of people uh, who have uh, COPD have this, and that is because what happens is usually tar from cigarette smoke, other dust, is protected by a layer which people who've got this condition do not have. And therefore, they get COPD much more commonly and at a much earlier stage of their life than people who do not have this. So it's this protective layer is not present. And this is a genetic uh, condition um, about 93% of the population have uh, completely normal genes. They're the normal uh, population in a sense from the point of view of just viewing this. Uh, quite a lot of people have one gene, the uh, Z gene, uh, and a small number, 25% if both parents have got one gene each, each have got uh, both genes, and they're the ones who will have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. So this is a recessive uh, condition. Uh, but when people have it, they're likely to get significant lung disease. Genetic variation isn't random in the global population. So all of you will know, for example, about sickle cell disease, which tends to be concentrated in people from Africa because it protects against malaria, or thalassemia, which is concentrated in Mediterranean and African regions for some of the same reasons, again, protects against malaria. Alpha-1 antitrypsin disease uh, is uh, actually quite a common uh, uh, genetic variant uh, in parts of Europe, particularly up here, but the UK has quite a significant amount of it. So this varies in the, in the world. The UK has a certain amount. But an even greater concentration of an important lung gene is the cystic fibrosis gene. And cystic fibrosis, which is also a, a recessive gene, genetic disease, uh, is 
concentrated very heavily, particularly uh, in the UK and other European countries. So the highest rates of cystic fibrosis, some of the highest rates are here in the UK or in populations around the world who came from the UK, for example, in Canada, US or Australia. So this is, to some degree, a UK and Irish disease. So cystic fibrosis is the commonest autosomal recessive condition in Caucasians. This is, as I say, this is very heavily genetically uh, based. In the UK, roughly 1 in 25 people carry a faulty gene uh, in this area. And there are over 2,000 known mutations that can cause varying degrees of severity of cystic fibrosis. So cystic fibrosis is not an either-or. It has varying degrees of severity. And what this means is that around 10,500 people, so that's 1 in 2,500 babies, have cystic fibrosis. This is when they have two faulty genes. If they only have one, they don't get cystic fibrosis. What this this does is a protein, this one here, CFTR protein, uh, is abnormal. And in areas of the body where this uh, this is important, and there are many of them, but the lung is the most important for the disease, Um, uh, they handle chloride, which is an iron, and water uh, badly. And therefore, what happens above this area is you get a buildup of mucus. And in that area, this thick mucus gets repeated atypical infections. It causes problems in other parts of the body, the pancreas, for example, but the most important thing uh, is in the lung. And most people who have cystic fibrosis which is, as I say, purely genetic disease, will go on to die of lung complications. Cystic fibrosis, however, the outlook for people with cystic fibrosis has improved really dramatically over the last few decades. And if you look at cohorts, that's people born at the same time, Uh, In terms of decades, these are Canadian data, these are Swedish data, the UK data look pretty similar. What you find is if you're in the 1960s, over half of people would have died before the age of 10. For people born after the 1990s, very large numbers will be alive uh, and living a good, normal life, uh, working, having a good social life uh, for several decades. And this improvement has been built up as with very many areas of medicine, with lots of small incremental improvements which build on top of one another. So they started off by using antibiotics, and antibiotics are still a mainstay to stop uh, major infections. Uh, But over time, we've added in large numbers of additional things which little by little are improving the outlook. One of the most important things, in fact, was was making sure that people with cystic fibrosis did not meet one another because that led to them exchanging Uh, bugs which would uh, be potentially very dangerous for them. And more recently, we've now got drugs which are able to target this protein directly. So this is the most common mutation. I'm not going to read it out. Uh, But about uh, 45% of people with cystic fibrosis, both of the genes that are abnormal, have got this. And we've got this new drug, uh, trade name or CAMBI, and this is a combined corrector of the protein and what's called a potentiator. It makes the protein uh, more effective. And so this drug uh, is probably the first of the really effective cystic fibrosis drugs. Several others are now in the pipeline. And this drug, uh, at this point in time, uh, in people who've got this mutation, so it's not everybody, reduced the rate of pulmonary uh, events by 30 to 40%. Now, the results are a bit complicated. They're some often overly simplified. And initially, at least, the cost of this drug was over $2,500 a year. So this is a non-trivial thing to consider from a health service point of view, but undoubtedly it is a major step forward, and we expect many other drugs, or at least several other drugs, to target this protein which are in the pipeline now. So the outlook with these new drugs is going to improve. And if we look forward... If the rate of progress we're getting at the moment, which is about 2% improvement in mortality a year, increases, we can reasonably predict that the median survival uh, from birth at the moment in the 40s, uh, median being halfway through, uh, and if people survive to 30 now, or if they're born now, their median survival will rise to their 50s, or round about 50. 
So over half the people with their babies born with cystic fibrosis today can expect to survive into at least their fifth decade. And that's assuming just the current rate of progress. Anything faster would take us there even more quickly. That is a considerable turnaround from when most of us were children. Obviously, the uh, drugs which actually interfere with the protein would not, are not as good, in theory, as if we could actually just deal with the genetic problem at source. And in principle, there are two ways we could do this in people who've got cystic fibrosis. It's still experimental, but it's definitely been achieved already in several genetic diseases like sickle cell, and so we're confident that in principle this could be done. One, one approach is you insert a normal gene alongside the faulty gene. So you, you, someone keeps their current genes, but you add one in that will then produce the normal protein that will actually uh, in, uh, lead to the cell uh, being adequate in terms of its uh, production of proper protein and therefore not having the mucus buildup. A second approach is to edit the gene. You generally, with a virus, uh, you, you sort of cut out the abnormal bit of the gene and you insert a new gene that is the correct genetic makeup to avoid cystic fibrosis. Both of these are not just theoretical. As I say, they've been used in other uh, situations. So this is another completely different approach to dealing with a genetic condition, in this case, cystic fibrosis. And of course, in theory, it would be possible to edit the early embryo and remove or edit the gene so that someone didn't have cystic fibrosis when born at all. Now, this, is got, this raises all sorts of ethical issues. At this point in time, that would not be socially acceptable and is illegal in the UK. But to be clear, that it doesn't mean it isn't scientifically possible. This is something which science would be capable of uh, relatively soon, in principle. So I've compared three important chronic respiratory diseases, asthma, COPD, and cystic fibrosis. Asthma, a combination of genes and environment. COPD, there is a little bit of a genetic basis, but basically an environmental disease and where the main environmental trigger is relatively easy to identify and to eliminate. And cystic fibrosis, an almost entire, well, an entirely genetic disease, but where the subsequent environment determines how quickly the disease progresses. So, and you can use these as illustrations of how chronic diseases behave. So for all chronic diseases, you have to think about genes environment, uh, and chance. Much of what we can do in terms of the environment uh, is under our own individual control, and smoking is an example of that, but some of it is not. And the next talk in this series, what I'd like to consider is air pollution, because that is something which all of us cannot choose to control ourselves. This is something which only society can take on. So genes, environment, and chance, but we can do a lot to improve uh, people's environment, and if we do that, the chances of them having severe disease uh, will significantly reduce. Thank you very much.